go it's november 6th remember remember forget forget the 6th of november i am so happy to be here with you on a fresh week the first fresh week in november and um what else is there to say i think it's going to be a good one now, tonight, we've got a first-time guest calling in. He'll be calling in from the road. Uh, he'll be calling in from the road because he's got a uh, really interesting job. Bob Mata is our, is our guest this evening. He's a criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, and the host of Defense Diaries. I have the entire link tree collection of links and information on all of Bob's work, Bob and his wife's work. They do great stuff together. And I've been watching them for a couple of weeks now. Gotta say, I think it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Because they do true crime as well as anybody else, but it's coming from a professional standpoint, of course. It's not just uh, hobbies and, and personal passions that is, that's playing out on the on the side of some. This is what they do. Uh, Bob is a criminal defense attorney and, um, and is personally involved in a couple of really incredible ongoing cases and outside of that commentates on many cases that are going on right now and also cases that have gone on in the past does a lot of work on on um, John Wayne Gacy I have a question or two about that tonight as we start off before we get into Delphi I want to talk about the Delphi murders and I also want to follow up on the Long Island serial killer situation because back on October I think 18th or 19th there was a press conference from a uh, a lawyer what is his name John Ray I forget his name I have it written down uh, a press conference from a lawyer here in New York that was st I mean watching it in real time with people everybody I mean it was uh, it was like um our heads were getting whipped around as far as all the things that were coming out um involvement of narcotics police detectives and and where it's all going there and that that rex hewerman guy and and the 11 dead and it's uh it's an incredible twist several twists that have come out in the last couple of weeks and i just want to build on that and i want to keep doing things like and with, with someone like bob mata out there and uh, being introduced to all of you and hopefully coming back in the future we can do more things like this and um and keep our heads on a swivel because I mean, there's a lot going on out in the world, and there's a lot of it that is interesting. We can't uh, we can't can't spend too much time on one thing. All right, 
it's it, it, and uh, as far as the Jimmy Hoffa thing, I know it's in the title, and I'll see if we have some time to get around to it actually. But that was just coincidence today that I saw that it, it circulated, it came by my desk just today, that um, I think some members of a true pro, a true crime podcast, which I got to ask Bob about this, you know, just how personal, how personally involved people around the world are uh, are getting with open cases or trying to crack open cold cases and all that stuff and they're doing it with moderate success but i would have to have to i would have to say that the the jimmy hoffa thing everybody has a jimmy hoffa theory i think we all know exactly what happened the kind of thing that happened to him but as far as the theory of where he is under which home plate, in which state, at what baseball stadium is he buried? Or if at all. I, it, it, well, another one of them has come out today. So it's just so much. And there's also the true crime that's going on right now in, uh, in New York with the civil case against Donald Trump, which is not so civil. And it's not about Donald Trump. The, the, the unfurling true crime case is about the state attacking Donald Trump in that case. It's just really incredible what's happening right now. Um, as far as the, you may or may not have heard, but the Nashville shooter from months ago, the transgendered, uh, murderer went into the, the Christian school and shot up children and their teachers. Well, there was a leak of the so-called manifesto, whether you believe it's the real manifesto or not. Um, it, 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 it either points toward a few things. The feds are allowing it to come out because they want there to be there want to be an increased risk of some kind of a backlash that can be used in one way or another. Or it's also just a uh, another example of of law enforcement suppressing information that the the public deserves to have. And it's pretty incredible. Everything you you'd imagine, everything that you would imagine. But I uh, we'll, we'll get to that in more tonight. I'm going to take on a take on a call with Bob Mata, who's on the road. So uh, we were going to have him sitting down, a Zoom call, video, audio, but tonight uh, he's going to be in his car. So I said, let's just opt for cell phones. You can use your Bluetooth and that there is an increased chance that the the call will actually stay connected. You don't want to uh, waste bandwidth and data on video when, you know, don't want to put anybody's life in danger here. All right, so that's what we have this uh, this evening. Tomorrow night, we're checking with Marley Hornick, New York Citizens Audit, uh, audit update on Election Day stuff and, um, and of course, v- the voter rolls and election integrity. I know she hates that, that term there, but it's been a little while since we spoke with Marley, and I can't wait to get an update from her. On Wednesday, we're going to be talking with V. Gorilla and Velez. It's going to be great to have them both back on. Actually, I think it's the first time that V is going to be on with us. Velez has been on quite a few times, but it's been a long time for him as well. Uh, Monica Kelsey, Save Save Haven Baby Boxes, will be on with us on November 9th. On Friday the 10th, I will be off air. Uh, there's a uh, family, family thing going on that night. I want to be there for my nephew. And, um, and then Saturday morning, I'll be taken off to... Uh, run around in Massachusetts for a little bit. So we'll see what happens there. But anyway, this is going to be a good week and I'm glad that you're all uh, you're all here with me to to enjoy it. The gig on Saturday night was pretty fun in Jersey City. 
in Jersey City. Well, the sunset was nice out there. I haven't seen much of Jersey City. Where I was at was interesting. It was a converted um, high school. And we played a fun 20-minute set. It was a good time. I streamed uh, streamed live for a couple of minutes to the Gilded chat a few times uh, behind stage, you know, backstage and and just, you know, chit-chat a little bit. That was fun. Got to meet the band and a few other people there. And and we'll see. We're going to be planning a bigger event in April at a, uh, a theater somewhere around here. And we will properly promote it. We'll get some opening acts. We'll be on stage for about... I don't know, at least uh, at least 60 minutes. So it'll be something worthy of pulling you all out there if you're in the tri-state area. So we'll see what happens with that. All right, let's get into the grab bag, shall we? Like I said before, Nashville Mayor's Office, mainstream media flips out after trans shooter manifesto leaks. Authenticity has now been confirmed. Metropolitan Nashville Police Department said Monday that the three images, including the alleged first three pages of the Christian Covenant School Shooters Manifesto, are not crime scene images. They're not. And while the, M, uh, the, uh, the Metropolitan Nashville Police wouldn't confirm the authenticity of the writings, Fox Nashville did. So they confirmed it was authentic. Social media photos claim to show some of the writings, and they are authentic. And now, of course, um, the update is... The update is incredible. Um, It it still is... Everybody's jumping on one way or another to either get it out or to suppress the hell out of it. The Reddit thing is interesting. On Reddit, Reddit lies on Twitter. They covered this one. Um, Reddit admins are handing out three-day site-wide bans to people who post the Nashville Manifesto because it, quote, threatens violence or physical harm. And they conclude that this suppression is happening all across Reddit, but they don't really care. They really do not want to see people looking at the manifesto, pining through it, because it's likely that the insane anti-white rhetoric is virtually indistinguishable from your average Reddit post. And it's true. It's true. Reddit is a shit show. I'm really happy that our forum got nuked over there. We had a lot of people on that forum. But I'm glad we went indie on quitefrankly.tv, and I hope that you all sign up there. It takes nothing but an email address, and you're not connected to Reddit. So that's what you have there. Now, whether or not you think that this is actually the manifesto, because you know what these things, especially especially the way that they are, they position it against the public, um, there's always a manifesto, and the way that it is disseminated, what is in there, it is all very very carefully presented to everybody and uh, even the struggle of suppression could be a play to the public as well i just don't i'm jaded with everything now um it's a it's another tragic act that cost people lives as as usual but as far as what we're being uh groomed to do what triggers are being flipped right now? I, I have no clue. It's up to you. There was a very interesting and kind of morbidly hilarious thing that happened with the Washington Times, though, when they were uh, posting about this early in the afternoon around 2 p.m. 
Here it is, the Washington Times. They tweeted this out, had to delete it right afterwards. Alleged Nashville manifesto shows killer Steven Crowder targeted little crackers with white privileges. So by accident, although I don't know how, the Washington Times tweeted out that the killer was Steven Crowder. The little crackers thing and the white privileges thing, that those are some of the elements contained inside of the manifesto. If you go read it yourself, then you will see that to be true. The Washington Times did go in reverse course on that, thankfully. Said a tweet regarding the Nashville manifesto story was posted in error and deleted shortly thereafter. The Washington Times applauds Stephen Crowder for his work, which of course did not include killing people. So they... Um, I'm open to your theories on the manifesto leak. I saw Alex Jones was out there and, uh, you know, they're reporting on it. A lot of people are reporting on it from the obvious standpoint of here's more suppression. And you, you, it's very easy to see why this would be suppressed by the people who call themselves law enforcement in this country now. It's, it's, a, it's apparent. It's apparent what they're, uh, what they're cooking up. But here's something else. You want to talk about suppression. Um, whereas any life lost, any innocent life lost, that would be considered collateral damage and, um, in some cases, martyrdom. Any life lost is horrific. What has been done in Ukraine to this point is a wide-scale massacre of hundreds of thousands of people, especially hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians. The ratio of Ukrainians versus Russians dead is way out of whack. We've been talking about it from the beginning um, because if you just had the guts to plug into alternate news sources, you would see almost two years ago now exactly what they're settling upon and preparing the greater public for at this very moment. This is from NBC News. It's really brutal. U.S. European officials broached the topic of peace negotiations. Peace negotiations with Ukraine, sources say. They are on the brink of total admission. After two years of saying that Russia was on the run, they are winning. They, uh, I mean, all of the fake heroes, all of the fake pilots, the ghost of this one, the snake of that one. Um, after all of that nonsense, after all of the, uh, you know, sending Ben Stiller out there to, to bow, Ben Stiller bowing before Zelensky, Sean Penn bringing his golden dildo out there for Zelensky. After all of that, this is what we're being left with. U.S. and European officials have begun quietly talking about the Ukra- to the Ukrainian government about what possible peace negotiation with Russia might entail to end the war. According to one current senior U.S. official and one former senior U.S. official familiar with the, the, with the discussions. You know what this is? This is the fat cats at a, stu- at, a, um, at a casino sitting around a table. And, I mean, it is long since past that they have showed up to their casino dressed to the nines, really dapper. They have their tuxedos on. They all feel like James Bond for the evening. Well, they're a little bit drunk. They're a little, they're a lot a bit tired. And they are just buried in chips. Man, have they taken the house for a ride. And you know what? You can't stay up forever. 
Let's just cash out. Let's just get that's exactly what's going on right now. They do not care. Like they have not cared every war in the 20th century from World War 1, they didn't care. They do not care. They have showed us this for well over 100 years now in modern warfare. They do not care about destroying multiple generations of young men. They don't care about destroying, killing multiple generations of young men and boys, destroying countries and cultures, and just raiding the treasuries, raiding the banks, and um, they'll kill anybody. They will kill any and as many people as they, as they please. The conversations have included very broad outlines of what Ukraine might need to give up the, to reach a deal, the officials said. Some of the talks, which officials described as delicate, took place last month during a meeting of representatives from more than 50 nations, including Ukraine, including NATO members, known as the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, the officials said. The discussions are an acknowledgement of the dynamics militarily on the ground in Ukraine and politically in the U.S. and Europe, officials said. They began amid concerns among U.S. and European officials that the war had reached stalemate. There is no stalemate. There's no stalemate. It, there is just no stalemate. Russia took exactly what they said they were going to take. Exactly what they said they were going to take. And then they just hunkered down and allowed wave after wave of NATO-backed troops to just be mowed down. In impenetrable force uh, uh, defenses. That it's just exactly what's been going on. No stalemate. No stalemate. You see, the stalemate here is they say stalemate because that gives Zelensky and the whole uh, Ukraine ghost force uh, credit for holding back the Russians from their expansionist, you know, their greedy bl- bloodlust for taking over the rest of Europe. Because that's what they said. It's going to start in Ukraine. It's going to go all throughout Western Europe. And Russia's just going to continue to expand, expand, expand. Was never the case. If anybody would listen, if anybody would listen, they would have known that. But a lot of people want to be lied to. They need to. They've got a, they've got a sexual allegiance to the people that are are running the show right now. They want to be lied to. They flew those flags with vigor, the dummies. And um, and here's what's going on. So they're going to they're going to call this a stalemate. And NBC News, even though they're just the purveyors of this one headline, they like so many others. Like so many others, these organizations, ladies and gentlemen, um, they assisted in the needless massacre of hundreds of thousands of people. That is what yellow journalism brings. It brings death and destruction, and it, and it only enriches the people that are, uh, that are at the top. It is so much nobler to work for the paparazzi pimps at TMZ than it is working for an organization like NBC. So much nobler. I, I, would, I would say, go ahead. Go ahead, chase Taylor Swift from uh, one luncheonette to another to another, and tell everybody what flavor margarita she's ordering for the day. You're ultimately not hurting anybody, okay? It may be a little bit vapid, frivolous, but you're not hurting anybody. NBC News and all of their affiliates and all of their sister networks, I mean, they carry water for people who make war and destroy nations and kill people indiscriminately. So... Here we are at the end of this, because I guess they have to focus more of their attention toward um, 
toward what's going on in Israel and and uh, Palestine. But again, they have drawn connection from there to Russia as well. And they have all, and we also have the other thing we have to remember in in Ukraine. Whatever is left of Ukraine after Russia, you know, reestablishes the borders, the new borders over there, whatever's left has to be neutral. Okay? I mean, there's still there's still a lot of unanswered questions about what happens next. Okay, the negotiations are going to be very interesting because that needs to be a buffer and that's non-negotiable for the dominant power in the region, which is Russia. They have nothing to fear from us. Nothing whatsoever. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. I can't wait to bring Bob Moda on. All right, we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. That man. That man. Can somebody tell me what kind of a world we live in where a man dressed up as a bat gets all of my press? Needs an enema. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! couple more days and we're going to start uh, kicking over to quitefrankly.tv powered by pill.net and uh, and foxhole a couple more days at the very latest next Monday the 13th is when we're going to start doing that and I got to tell you I'm so excited about the music I'm so excited about new ba- I mean there's so many things we can do that I've been wanting to do for a long time man Beavis and Butthead style watching uh, watching a music video. That would be great on a, on a Friday night. Cheesy music videos. That would be great. Well, anyway, a lot of things on mind. And, uh, and for now, I want to just bring something else up because I said it's going to be a night of true crime. We're talking about crimes all over the place in Nashville, in Ukraine, and also in New York right now. This is from Newsmax. 
You might have been following it on the internet today. Political warfare, Trump testifies in $250 million New York civil trial. Nothing civil about it. The judge presiding over the New York civil fraud trial of Donald Trump repeatedly admonished him to keep his answers concise on Monday, reminding him that this is not a political rally. Oh, he must have gotten off. Every time the, co- the court went into recess, he probably went and diddled himself. I'm a, I'm a strong man. I'm a strong man. I'm a strong man. He must have loved it. I've never been stronger. The Christmas parties are going to be great. All these, all these, these, uh, these, uh, these freaks getting together for their holiday parties, for their winter fests. They're going to get around, crossing their legs, shaking a leg, shaking a, uh, shaking a foot as they swill their wine, their Prosecco. Oh, you did wonderful. You did wonderful, Arthur. Was his name Judge Arthur Engeron? You did wonderful, Arthur. I was watching the whole thing. Wonderful. You got him. It's nothing. That's really nothing. I, I, can see, I can see it. I can smell it. I can smell the whole... These are people who are worth billions and they still smell like shit. Sorry. We don't have time to waste. We have one day to do this, an exasperated judge Arthur said. At another point, turning to Trump's attorney, the judge said, I beseech you to control him if you can. If you can't, I will, because he has the power. He has the power. He can do it. I can control men. He wishes. He loves it. Pay for it. Anyway, that's what's going on there. You got Letitia James, our uh, our half-wit Attorney General over here in New York, just watching the whole thing like uh, she's Emperor Palpatine, watching the Death the, the Death Star getting built. I I don't know. It's just so so stupid, and um, and we gotta see how it goes. Gotta see how it goes. I all all we're getting. The other thing is that we're getting records and we're getting quotes because there's no cameras inside of the court. That would be um, must see TV to watch Trump actually in this situation, because I'm reading that he is not masking his anger at all. And you know what? At this point, I mean, at any point, how can you not be totally angry? Totally angry. But we'll see where it goes. And uh, perhaps I can bring somebody on to go through the nitty gritty of that case. But I've got something else tonight. We're going into a darker world, a darker world, still the legal world, but dark nonetheless. We're going to be calling up Bob Mata. All right. And uh, and Bob, he is a uh, he is a criminal defense attorney, as I said, and he does deep, deep dives into both old and new cases of the true crime world. That is as a host for his true crime podcast. That is Defense Diaries, legal analyst. And he's here tonight. Uh, I'm going to give him a call. Let's go and do that. Hello. Hello, and here he is right now, Bob Mata. Welcome to the show. What's up, Frank? How you doing, man? I'm good, dude. I'm sorry that it's uh, under these circumstances. I was fully intending on being on the Zoom, so uh, I could look at your handsome face for the entirety of the interview. But, you know, life got in the way. I, I had to run down to St. Louis and do a prison visit today, so... 
which I think we should probably talk about it in a different in a different uh, in a different episode. But it's it's a pretty interesting case. But yeah, I'm in transit back, driving back from St. Louis back up home to Chicago, man. So thanks for accommodating this, man. Oh, I got you. No, and, and just to let you know that the the sound is coming in pretty clear. You sound a little bit distant, so just uh, give us the you know give us our best uh, your best projected uh, guttural voice whenever you whenever you can. I think we're going to do just fine. But I'm 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 just happy that you kept the time uh, for us even as you drive right now. And I'm also even happier that you are hands free. I just want everybody to know Bob would not be doing this with me if he wasn't hands free. I care too much about him. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All right, so here's what I got. Um, we just, uh, I, I just got turned on to your show recently within the last couple of weeks. I'm really, really enjoying it. I can't wait to watch more. I've already learned a lot. But I just wanted to ask of you, uh, your, your inspiration of becoming a defense attorney. Let's just talk about you for a little bit. So, I mean, I'd have to blame my father, <laughs> uh, my dad's longtime defense attorney I uh, obviously as a young as a young boy I always looked up to my dad I always thought it seemed like a cool profession I liked the fact that he was in a suit it seemed like he was doing important things and then you know eventually he ended up bringing me into court for the first time and I think it was on a, a murder case and, and my father was originally uh, a public defender came out of law school uh, and he ended up becoming uh, the head of the public defender's office and so I, I think we were in there on a on a pretty heavy-duty felony case and you know I'm probably like eight or nine and he says all right you know what go ahead and sit here in the gallery I'm gonna go up it's called so he goes up and him and the judge get in this huge argument like a massive argument they're screaming at each other my father's trying to get funds from the county to hire experts because he's, you know, he's saying that his, his client has mental illness and he needs to be psychologically evaluated. And the judge is saying, I'm not giving you any money from the county, Ma, I get out. You know, so my dad's going back and forth. So he ultimately ends up kicking my dad out of the courtroom that day. So that was my, like, first exposure to, you know, the practice of law. And it stuck. And I, I realized at that point, walking out of that courtroom that what my dad does, he tries to give a voice to the voiceless and he tries to uphold the principles of the constitution. And, you know, I, I think from that, that point on, I decided, yeah, that's probably going to be for me. Now, when I got out of college, I didn't go right to law school. I was actually a, a social worker for five years. I had wanted to work with, uh, try to help kids. They wouldn't hire me. I don't know if it's because I was a dude or, I don't know what it was. I, I passed the state exam with like a perfect score three times. I couldn't even get an interview with in Illinois. They call it DCFS department of children and family services. So I ended up working with seniors for a few years and then which I really enjoyed, which was, you know, it, it's an important role in society to, to you know, try to help those that, that need help. Mm. Uh, and then ultimately I decided to pull the trigger and uh go to law school man and so go to law school i meet my wife there 
And uh, oh, by the way, and, and and by the way, I really I really enjoy uh, your wife's role in all the broadcasting that you do. Uh, she she's even fi- more fiery than you are at times. It's it's really a, a great combination. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, she's she's the brains of the operation. You know what I mean? I can, oh yeah, I can tell totally. <laughs> well, let, let me so let me ask you this. I I I heard I, I don't have too much information about it, but I just heard and I wanted to ask you that your father was actually one of John Wayne Gacy's attorney. Is that right? It's a true story, man. So is true that story. is is so that yeah, because of his public defender? One of so yeah, he was the trial lawyer. It was him and Sam Amaranti tried the case back in uh, 1980. You know, Gacy got arrested back in. December of 78 and like the story kind of goes is I, I, my parents had been divorced I was living I think in Colorado at, the, at that time and I had come back for Christmas you know my Christmas visit with them during our Christmas break when the Gacy case broke on the news and I'm sitting there with my father and his brother my uncle uh, when that story broke and then they cut to this little attorney guy looks like he's five three, which I think is about what Sam is. And my dad's like, Oh my God, Holy shit. I know him. You know, he's like, I know Sam. I wonder if he needs help on this case. And my dad had just left the PD's office and hung his own shingle. So he'd just gone into private practice. So this is long before cell phones and texting and emails. He's like, I'm going to go. He's like, you know, I'm like, yeah, you should do it. Dad having no idea what that entailed thought it'd be cool it was on tv you know not realizing the gravity of the type of case it was and he always blames me that he he got sucked in the case in a a joking type manner but so he ends up uh sending a western union old school to amaranti asking him if he needs help on the case and amaranti gets back to him almost immediately and my dad like freezes up on the call like oh like uh yeah, you know, actually, I got a bunch of shit. You know, it's like, it's like when you start to realize the magnitude of a case like that, it can really, it can mess with your head, and it did. And he ends up hanging up the phone with him, saying that he didn't think that he was going to be able to do it because he had too many other matters up, and it was going to be a practice killer. Blah 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 blah. And then he thought better of it. Like 15 minutes later, called Sam back, and then he was in the case. So, okay, well, yeah, let, was, uh, so let me ask you about that. Um, well, for and how old were you at the time? Uh, it went down in '78, so I was nine. Okay, so you didn't have an adult. You, did you ever uh, have an adult conversation with your father about this later in life? Because obviously, you know, you oh. you wouldn't know all the all the right questions to ask him at that point. But obviously, where when you were forging your own path, this must have been a great interest of yours. Oh man, well yeah, like. That's what my first season of my podcast is, is the Gacy case. So kind of the impetus of me getting into podcasting is I practice law for 20 years, man. And, you know, you take the beating from the criminal defense side of it because everyone hates you. The judges hate you. The prosecutors hate you. They don't know what we do. You know, the public hates you because they have no idea what we do. I spend a ton of time on my podcast educating people about what we really do and how critical defense attorneys are to the to the system and to society in general i mean we are the ones who protect the, the principles of the constitution so at any rate my dad had given me all his taped interviews with gacy wow he was he was recording when he was preparing gacy for his insanity defense trial 
I held on to him. He gave him to me for my 21st birthday. Wow. Super weird gift. but And I sat on him, dude, for decades. And then I finally, you know, and I didn't know what to do with them. And then I I think that they have value. I think that they have historic value. As, as ugly as the history is, it's history nonetheless. And I thought that the public deserved to hear them. Um, my, my father and Sam, uh, Casey had waived privilege because privilege, attorney-client privilege, that survives death. All right. So, like, had Casey not waived privilege, I, I technically probably could have played him. I didn't represent him, but I didn't want to jam my dad up. So, but he had waived privilege. That's how we thought Sam and my old man were going to get paid was through a book or a movie deal because Casey ran out of And a case like that kills the rest of your practice the only thing you can work on you can't you can't take on new business if you're in private practice with a case like that so you know fast forward 30 years man and uh i actually when joe berlinger the cat who did the uh Bundy tapes under his conversations with the killer on netflix the night that thing dropped i binged it and i'm like yeah it was all right you know and, and so i as a flyer i i looked up his email, shot him an email. I'm like, hey, man, you know, I have some tapes. You might be interested in licensing the sound. They're much better than what you had with Bundy. These are actually a defense attorney preparing his client, one of the most horrific human beings ever walked the planet for his trial. You know, they're, they're different, and no one's ever heard anything like it. So, like, I then negotiated for nine months. I couldn't come to a deal with Perlinger. And I started the pod. Yeah, my, my podcast, dude, is 36 episodes. It's the deepest dive in the game. If any of your, your uh, viewers I, like podcasts, check it out. Yeah, I was looking at it. Uh, I was looking at the listing before, and I have one more question about this before we move on to Delphi. Um, uh, what is What was uh, your father, or speaking on defense attorneys in general, what, what's your approach in a case where you know that your client is not only guilty of a crime or a series of crimes, but they are an, they are a an irredeemable monster, um, because at least in the movies, uh, lawyer we we always see like in a Devil's Advocate, the, the lawyers are always counting their wins and losses like they're starting pitchers in, in Major League Baseball. So when you take on a client in a case that is so open and shut, wherein there's no chance of you know quote unquote winning or with or you know any any desire to want to help a monster like that what's the motivation for taking the case and i, I want to know about that what's the approach and motivation so and that's a great question it's frankly the number one question that people ask i mean the number one question everybody asked my father was how how could you defend that guy and the answer is pretty simple. Number one, every defendant in this country pursuant to the Constitution has an unequivocal right to a trial, a fair trial. So what you do in a case like that is you defend the principles of the Constitution. I advise my clients of his rights. I advise him as to the process. And I do everything in my power to make sure that the cops did their job properly prosecutors doing their job properly so that the thing doesn't get kicked, like get kicked back on appeal man i mean imagine being a family member of a victim and you've got a trial that is just hot garbage 
because you have an incompetent defense attorney over there that's not objecting when they need to object, that they didn't file the motions that they need to file, and the thing gets kicked back on appeal so that that family has to live through that nightmare again. Mm. I mean, that's that's typically the approach, man. You know, because it's like the reality is it's nothing like TV. You know, my clients are coming in. No one ever comes in and confesses. You know, but what happens is They'll come in and they'll say, yeah, I didn't do it. Then I get the discovery. And then I'll sit them down and I'll say, all right, man, you know, I know you came in and said that you didn't do this thing, but let's go through what the state's got on you right here. And so I'll spend the time to go through the discovery explaining, okay, they've got very powerful evidence and this isn't a magic show. I don't give a shit how silver-tongued I am. You know, you're going down on this thing. So my advice to you is to allow me to, to try to plead you out to get the most reasonable deal that I can. It's not every case is a murder. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean there, there's a lot of crimes out there, Frank. There's all, a whole gamut. And I, you know, we handle all of them. So, you know, typically there's a misnomer that, that you know, everything goes to trial. Nothing goes to trial. 97% of cases plead out. Most of the time the cops do the job right. Most of the time the criminals are not smart they make mistakes and most of the times they plead you know i mean that's the fact of the matter so my job at that juncture becomes very different than trying a case you know that point i'm trying to like say for instance i got an 18 year old kid who just did some boneheaded shit you know and i'm trying to go into the state and and trying to humanize my client say look this is a kid who made a mistake he's not a he's not a bad kid can we, can we try to negotiate something where we're not going to ruin his life by hanging a felony on him? You know, I'm not suggesting that we don't punish him. He needs to feel it. But, you know, let's try to work with him. And, and you know, and especially if I got you. he's dealing with mental illness oh, or, yeah. or drug addiction, man. I mean, like, if you look at most crimes, those, those two things are almost always involved, either mental illness or addiction, either drugs and alcohol. I mean, it's, it's almost always Well, you, you make you make some great points there, and I can see that you're pretty much a, uh, especially in those open and shut cases of the worst degree, the most historic kinds, I can see how the defense attorneys really are just facilitators of the process to make sure it gets wrapped up as neatly as possible and it gets in the books because uh, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I would never. That's why I wanted to ask, because I would never assume that uh, that you're in there looking for a win to see how you can get a John Wayne Gacy back on the streets. I, that would never be a. But but it is uh, it is no. cool to hear that perspective come in. Now, as far as um, and, that, and remember, that was a case that was an insanity defense, which you know, in theory, in Illinois back in the day, you know, because there's the argument: can can we learn anything from these monsters? Can there be anything learned if, if they're institutionalized and they allow themselves to be subjected to, to testing? And, you know, like, can we learn anything in terms of profiling if they start to open up and start to talk or maybe we can help prevent things in the future? I mean, that, that's the argument, you know, in terms of trying to get an insanity defense plead through. But, man, trying to convince a jury, especially in a case like that, where people just want an eye for an eye, you know, you don't you don't kill 33 young boys and walk away from it. No. You know, so it's like an incredibly uphill battle to convince people that somebody like Gacy, who clearly is not normal, not not by our standards, like that he's mentally 
he's got something that he's missing that the rest of us have, you know, but trying to convince them that it was a compulsion that he couldn't stop himself is a near impossible task because of that, that situation where people are like, no, I don't care. <laughs> you know, you're going down, dude. So it's like, that's what they call the insanity defense, defense last resort. Number one, because we know very little about the human mind. Even the most brilliant psychologists and psychiatrists only can know so much about the human mind. And, and beyond that, just trying to get a jury to buy into it. You know, where somebody who, like Gacy, where he's, he's burying the body. It's clear that he has the concept that he's doing wrong. Yeah. Right? But he can't, you know, the argument was he couldn't, like he couldn't stop his compulsion from doing it. Not that he didn't understand what he was doing was wrong, because he was clearly evading police, you know, but like trying to get that concept to a jury, it's tough, man, you know, because people are... At, at the same time, at the care. at the same time, you can make the case that I mean, you need to be absolutely insane to be driven uh, to have that kind of an insatiable hunger for for death and depravity, and, uh, and and to just be a machine like that. That there's some there there must be something other than uh, normal. Uh, you, there's there's something other than the normal that is uh, at the at the wheel in a person's mind like that and there's the soul or it, it, it's nuts but you know what I, I we're taking that that standpoint of the system and the way it's supposed to work and all the people all the agents and the uh, the uh, the uh, officers of the court that are in their roles and trying to do the right thing and then we go to a, a case like the Delphi murders and where we have we have a story of murder uh, claims of satanic ritual abuse, Odinism, uh, and then we have, but then we, then we have what seems to be stonewalling police, and now a suspect in custody. And you said, Bob, on your show the other day, here's a quote, or something close to it. I'm not a conspiracy guy. I'm a facts guy, and I'm starting to believe that Richard Allen, the man who's been charged with these murders, is being railroaded. Now, Bob, I would love it if you can treat me and my audience like a jury and sum up this case as you see it today um, so that everyone, at least for this, the rest of this conversation, could be on the same page. What are the big takeaways from this case and, um, and of course, the situation that this man, Richard Allen, finds himself in right now? Yeah, and it's... Uh like, I, I'm knee-deep into it, as I'm sure you're aware at this point. But, you know, when that PCA, when the probable cause affidavit dropped after, you know, the case had gone cold for five years, and Fran Gull, who was the special judge that was appointed to the case, you know, they make the arrest in October of last year, and then she immediately seals the probable cause affidavit. All right? So that, that sends up a red flag. I mean, our, our country, the way that we operate, Again, I'm a big I'm a big Constitution guy, man. Like that that document is the backbone of our society, bar none. It's the only reason we exist the way that we do. And publics are to be trial. Our, our trials are to be public. We're like unequivocally, we are supposed to be able to uh, try cases in the sunlight, not in the shadows. And that's done for uh, you know accountability and transparency. We need to know what's going on in these cases. So when she, she that document, which is very unusual, I immediately became suspicious. I'm like, look, because there's got to be a very, very extenuating circumstance, something exceptional uh, in order for her to decide to seal it, such as 
witnesses' lives could be in danger or law enforcement's lives could be in danger. Something that dramatic has to be going on in order for her to seal it. So then when the thing drops, when she decides to unseal it three months later, and I look at it, and I'm like, all right, so they got mere presence. Okay, and if anybody knows about the case and you follow the case, well, that well, that's uh, well, Bob. That's what I would love for you. If you can nutshell, I, I know we have we have two deaths, two young girls. Yep. Two two younger. You said so. Yeah. So, so give us the give us the nutshell for people who are just hearing this for the first time, and then bring us right up to uh, where we are today. Okay, so we have, we got two two sweet young girls, thirteen, fourteen, uh, Abigail Williams and Libby German. Okay, and uh, they happened to be off school. It was on February 13th of uh, 2017. It was a snow day that never got used, and they ended up giving the girls the day off. And, uh, well, all the kids. So the girls had the day off. It was a pretty mild day in Delphi, Indiana. And there's this area, kind of a recreational area, where there's a trail and there's a, an old trestle that runs over a river and people go there to, to walk, to exercise, to hang out. A lot of kids hang out there. So they get dropped off by uh, one of their sisters and the dad comes to pick them up at 3.30 in the afternoon and no answer on the phones. So then by, you know, they, the parents are worried, but at that point they're not panicking. You know, they start calling all their friends like, hey, have you seen Abby or Libby? No one's seen the girls. So by five o'clock, they're like, oh my God, something terrible happened. So they finally go to law enforcement. They're like, okay, the girls are missing. We don't know where they're at. And at that point, because it's February, they can't search for that long because it's getting dark very early. So by 5.30, the on the ground search is done. They throw up like a heat seeking drone. They don't even know where the girls could be. They don't know where the crime scene is. They just know that the girls went missing from the bridge. And so they put a call out to the public. Now, Delphi is about a town of 1,200 people. And so it's very small. It gets blasted out all over the news in Indiana. You know, and, and law enforcement makes a statement and something to the effect of, look, if you're out at the bridge on this day, we need you to just come in. We, we need to see what you know or what you saw or if you have anything that you can help us with and we just want to know if you're out there so the guy who ends up getting arrested rick richard allen had gone in or made a call to the tip line the day of pursuant to the request from law enforcement said hey i was out there and they said okay we're going to have a resource officer stationed at a, at a supermarket tomorrow please go out and, and talk to him and give him your statement so he does that thing, and so that day, the 14th, Valentine's Day, uh, is the day that the girls are discovered, okay? Now, the way that they handled the investigation, it was super hush-hush, and it, it always has been for five years. The details of the crime scene were never, were never put out by law enforcement. There were always rumors that it looked ritualistic in nature, but no one could substantiate it, and the thing ends up going cold for five years. And, and kind of what made the case famous, what really put it on the map was, I think it was on the 17th of February, one of the girls was brave enough to take a, like a 49 second Snapchat of 
originally she was shooting Libby, her friend, and happened to be in the in the frame of it. This this guy, okay, and that guy became bridge guy. Like so, they they then released this grainy photo of this guy who they believed to be the killer, and that like from that it became national news. And the next day they released this sound from the video where he says down the hill girls and so like you had those two components and it just it set the case on fire it so became, like probably so, the biggest like biggest case of true crime at that point so even though honest. so then bob even though they they didn't really have a a very defined image of of who it is they they did actually the girls did capture the the guy the person who did ultimately do this on tape where they actually had, they actually had, uh, caught him commanding them to go down the hill. Now, they, well, we don't know yet because the way that they did is they released a still photograph of this bridge guy, mm-hmm. and we don't know that he's the killer, but they're assuming that he's the killer because that's around when the girls basically went off grid. Okay, so. The, the, uh, the natural assumption is to assume that that guy had something to do with it, right? So then a couple of days later, so like, it's assumed that the sound comes from that video, but they've never played. We've never, we haven't seen the video in its totality yet, ever. So we don't know if it's a separate, like everyone's just assuming that it comes from that snap, that snap video. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. we, we can't confirm it. So, but it, the, the assumption has always been, yes, that the, the bridge guy is the killer. All right, so fast forward, thing goes cold. Fast forward to October of, of last year, they finally make their arrest, okay? And it's this guy, Richard Allen, who's a local, lives in Delphi, works at the CVS, works behind the counter, uh, you know, processing photographs for people that are coming in. And he's married, he's got a kid, he's got no criminal history, uh, seems to be a, a pretty normal guy. And, you know, so I, I'm looking at the probable cause affidavit, and they basically have him volunteering him being there, which, you know, people use the word he admits that he was there. I, I always consider the word admitting is to be uh, like you, you're admitting to doing something wrong. I, he voluntarily placed himself at the scene because they asked all the people that were out there to place themselves at the scene if they were there and to, you know, say, this is what I was wearing, this is who I saw, mm-hmm. and he did all that. And so then I keep reading, and they claim that they had found an unspent shell casing at the scene. The girls, neither of the girls were shot, okay? They were both stabbed. But they found this this unspent casing that was in the dirt between the girls, is the way they, they say it. So then they, they say they go and they interview Richard Allen. Like after this 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 statement that he made got lost for five years, and I know it's gonna remind you maybe of Gilgo a little bit in terms of the fact that we had a witness who talked about an ogre and a first generation green Chevy Avalanche. And for some reason, they basically had the same information a long time ago, but didn't make the arrest. It's kind of the same thing happened here, except Hewerman 
very clearly to me appears to be the monster. Whereas in this case, I, I just don't like my gut is telling me that that he's not the guy. Well, then, and, and, and I'm basing that on on the lack of evidence that they had in that PCA. Okay, so I mean, what, what this is all new to me, obviously, because uh, we just we dip in, we dip out, and I, I try to see where right. things have gone gone along, and uh, we were seeing that there was some very very uh, less than. I would say uh, less, less than uh, helpful activity from local law enforcement. It, it almost seemed like there was a, a a stone wall being put up, and now you're talking about the the odd, the oddly, um, I don't know, the oddly stiff uh, judge that is doing all this stuff. And I'm I'm looking at right. the. I know that there was a memorandum that came out recently by the uh, the attorneys that were assigned to or, or had the case. On the docket for themselves, and what happened with this uh, this uh, this memorandum? Because I know that there was something about stolen crime scene photos or something that was leaked to podcasters. And I, I need to know exactly what was going on with this so I can get it right. A lot, man, a lot. So yeah, so basically, the thing was like seven months in, and, and like I was attending the hearings to Delphi, like a two and a half hour drive, and I've always. I've always been interested in and following the case pretty heavily. And as, a, and as an attorney now turned podcaster, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to every hearing. I want to I see what's up. So, you know, I, I get to the first hearing. And the first thing that, like, and I'm going to get to everything else, but the first thing that really took my breath away was when they brought Alan out, who's in custody, obviously, but he's 5'4". I mean, the guy is super small. Uh, like, like I couldn't believe how small he was. Now you can't tell scale from the bridge guy photo, but I had always assumed he looked like a big dude to me, you know, like, and again, it's blown up clearly, but, and there's nothing that you can really, at least that I can, can use for scale in terms of trying to figure out how tall the guy is. But it, it, it like, it blew my hair back when I saw how small he was. I'm like, wow, that that's crazy. Uh, so fast forward to uh, September. Now, there had been a few motions that had been filed by the defense, primarily one because he's being housed in a prison as opposed to a jail. Typically, uh, 99% of the time, people awaiting trial sit in a county jail if they can't bond out or if bond's not available to them. They sit in a jail and await trial. They don't go to prison. They put this guy in the, like, the House of Pain in, in Westville Penitentiary hmm. in, in Indiana. So they tried to go in and get him out. Because you see him, he'd lost like 68 pounds. He looks like, like, like the only way I could describe it when I first laid eyes on him is he was vacant. It was like nobody was home. He had that thousand-yard stare that you're, you're just like, man, where, where's this guy at mentally? And, you know, so they, they went in. She, they put on their evidence. They talked about how they were filming all of their, their attorney-client interviews in the prison, which is verboten. You know, like attorneys, we have the opportunity to speak to our clients and prepare them for trial in private. And, and that didn't seem to be uh, what was going on. So then in September, the 136-page memo drops, which, as you said, laid out this entire theory of the possibility that this was a ritualistic killing by Norse paganism, some form of Odinism. Uh, which basically, if your your viewers don't know what that is, it's basically like 
like it's Viking religion, you know. They believe in the Valhalla that they're going to go to Valhalla, and it's it's very kind of like earth driven, you know. They 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 take everything revolving around the earth is is like just absolutely uh, imperative to them. It, it like it, it goes along with everything that they believe in that, that nature is all part of of us and we're all a part of nature. And outside so, of that, there was so, there was a lot about deceitful cops in there too, aside from the ritualistic oh, aspect. Man. A lot so about that, deceitful that's cops. The Frank yeah. That's the Frank hearing. So there's two separate things. Like I love I from a defense attorney's perspective, I loved the memo. It was one of the greatest things I'd ever read or ever read. And and it, it like make there's no bones about it. The defense, they laid out their entire theory of the case. They tried to even the playing field in terms of because, like, typically when you read a PCA, like when you read, like, the Hewlett bail application where if they had not gotten a, a grand jury indictment and they had to go in to get an arrest warrant, that PCA would have been what we all read. And you read through that thing and you're like, damn, they got this guy unlocked. That was a hell of an investigation, right? So, but like that becomes the narrative that the public hears for two, three years while it takes to get to trial. So, the people are always, the public's always hearing the state's theory of the case. And that's all it is, the PCA. They weren't there. The cops weren't there. The prosecutor wasn't there. Only the victims and the killer are there. So those are the only two people that really know, or if it's more, multiple people that know. And obviously, if the victims were killed, there's only one person that knows, and that's the killer. So, like, you know, those theories sit out there, and that's why you see a lot of people assigning guilt to defendants in cases where they might not, they, they they really might not be doing that if the defense's theory was also out there, where you're hearing both sides. And like Hewerman, I don't know what that guy would say, but like with this case, it turns out that they they find out that there's this like huge amount of people that practice Odinism in rural Indiana, and that there's there's three cops that ended up following that particular course of investigation where the unified command, which were the six cops that were basically investigating it, decided to abandon the Odinism or the ritualistic thing. They're like, nah, we're not doing the satanic panic thing, man. But these three cops continued to investigate it for months. They end up generating reports. And then when Allen gets arrested, one of the cops click, like sends a letter to uh, an email to, to McLeland, who's the prosecutor says, Hey man, like, I, I don't know why you arrested this Richard Allen guy, but uh, I don't think he's the guy. And, and I think that our investigation needs to be investigated more because we think that there's connection here. Jeez. So, so that's, that's kind of the Odinism part of it. And, and then you get to the Franks hearing, which is what you're talking about. Now, the Franks hearing, in, in lay people's terms, is pretty simple. It's basically where you state as the defense that law enforcement came in front of the judge either in testimony or in sworn affidavit and lied in order to get the warrant. And in this case, it was the warrant to search Richard Allen's home. So, like, the, the defense attorneys are like, look, he, this Tony Liggett, who was the sheriff at the time, he's like, he, he went in and he lied. He changed the statement from these four witnesses completely what they said in order to fit his narrative in order to get into that house to search for the clothes and a 40 caliber weapon which was the the caliber weapon that's the bullet that they found 
which was unspent. And again, the girls weren't shot, but that, you know, that that was the, the caliber weapon that they were looking for was a 40 cal. So that thing, and, and that all comes from their evidence. It's like, Tony, it's not going to report say, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you talk to the witness, the girl witnesses, and they said what they said. So if they go in and they can prove it in terms of law enforcement lying, it then becomes an evaluation for the judge where, where she would have had to have decided, okay, I'm going to pull out the things that he lied about. Do I still think there's enough probable cause for the warrant to survive? So that would have become the analysis. Well, right? the, and, now with this, I, I got to ask on this one because you're talking about the uh, the um, the memorandum that comes out. It starts all this. Uh, it starts all these uh, this problems along the chain of command here. But it is also the, that first salvo of getting an alternative theory out to the public. And I know that the uh, the nineteenth uh, the nineteenth comes along. And this hearing is supposed to start, and it never takes place because the the lawyers Bradley and Rosie they resign, and I um, now I see that the the Rosie guy he filed motions blasting the judge, saying that what happened yeah. to them before the hearing was an ambush, and that the judge gave the attorneys two options: one was to resign before the hearing started, or else she would em- embarrass them somehow. Uh, in open court, in front of their clients, and in front of the cameras. Now, I heard that Rosie is fighting back by blasting the judge, and you know, pretty much, pretty serious allegations. Can you tell us about the, the the allegations that he has with the judge? Yeah, I mean, essentially, what it is is that. Uh, so you you had intimated about the the leaked photos, the crime scene photos. That there was a leak, okay, and and there had been an earlier leak. It wasn't really anything of of any kind of real importance in terms of evidence, but Baldwin, the other lawyer, had inadvertently emailed kind of an evidence list. And it wasn't photographs or anything of substance. It was basically like a table of contents of what the evidence was to a client that had auto-populated into his email. So, like, like if I were to, to type in Frank, like trying to, to hit another Frank up and you auto-populate and I just click send. So that's what happened. No harm, no foul with that. Certainly a little sloppy. So the second thing is apparently a guy that worked with Baldwin in his office for years, who he considered a friend, uh, called him and said, hey, man, I want to come hang out, came over, back to the office, snuck in there, took some pictures, and then leaked them. Now, the leak was contained, so nothing got out to the public per se. So at that point, uh, you've got a situation where the judge is blowing hot from the uh, from the, the Franks memo, okay, because she was pissed that they didn't file it under seal, which they had zero obligation to do. The case is not under seal. She keeps sealing things, but she doesn't have a right to do that. Hmm. Like, she really doesn't. Like, 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 dockets are supposed to be clear and, and open for us. Now, if they're super sensitive photographs, yes. You can make them confidential so they can't, so the public can't see them. They'd be publishing them online, like people would, for whatever reason, would do that. But there's those folks out there that do that kind of shit, you know. So, like that kind of stuff, yeah, you keep that confidential. But as far as filings, pleadings, motions, exhibits, that's all public record. She had no right to be hiding that. That's what I'm saying. She was, she was trying the case in the dark, and it needs to be tried in the in the sunlight, man. It's like very confusing. Not how we do it in this country. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, very it, confusing. So 
she ends up that day on the 19th and I was in court. I was all excited. I thought we were going to have a hearing. I did the drive and she, she, you know, she basically comes out five minutes later and this is up in, in Wayne County or in Allen County in Fort Wayne where her, that's her home turf. Okay. So it's in her big courtroom. She had, she had gone ahead and, and approved cameras. It's the one and only time she did it. And they walk into the room and she hands them a bullet point sheet of paper. She says exactly what you said, what I consider to be a Hobson's choice, which is no choice at all. She says either I'm going to pants you and I'm going to shame you publicly and flamethrow your, your client's defense in public, or you can withdraw with grace. So like the whole argument that I was having with everybody is everybody's like, oh, not everybody, but that side of it was like, oh, she's being kind to them. I'm like, no, she's not. She's not being kind to them. She's railroading and with no due process. She had no idea what had gone on. Like it, it deserved a hearing due process for Richard Allen requires that there's an evidentiary hearing as to what went on and did it affect his defense? You know, and, and like she didn't do any of it. Like, you know, like it, that's the thing that I'm just ranting and raving about. I mean, it's like, so then when it turns into her then deciding, because like Baldwin, he, he, he caved, you know, on the 19th. He says, okay, I'll make a, an oral motion of withdrawal, Your Honor. She says, okay, I accept it. Rosie's pretty crafty. He's like, you know what? I'm going to put it in writing, and I'll get it to you in a few days. In the interim, that's when he puts her on blast, does exactly what, what went on in that hearing, and then uh, files a motion requesting the audio and the transcripts, which apparently she had recorded in chambers and for the in-camera hearing, which we all deserve to hear. You know, like this guy, like both these guys had nothing in their past in terms of like no bar dings, nothing. 50 years combined, both had sterling relation, or, uh, reputations and both are accomplished attorneys. And, you know, like she's going and flamethrowing these guys' reputations because she like, and, and like, so skip, so, so Rosie files a motion to DQ and then he files a uh, verified notice that he considered himself still to be counsel to Richard Allen. So that's the thing. So that leads us up to Halloween. Okay. And that's, that's when I, I drive back to Delphi I knew ahead of time because I like I like I know people in there, and so I, I like I know what's going on. I, I knew the night before that that both Rosie and Baldwin had filed their their pro se appearances as private counsel because there's a whole like we could spend an hour talking about the Sixth Amendment and, and when when and that's as to to Richard Allen and his his right his unmitigated right to pick his own attorney. I mean, just try to think of, like, God forbid you got arrested for something. Oh, yeah. And no, listen. And a judge telling you that you couldn't pick who your attorney was. Yeah. I mean, everything like, everything you've said so far in, in just describing the the, uh, the conditions that this other guy is in. Now, listen, if it seems I, I – and here's the whole thing. Um, there's a little bit of sympathy – uh, in the uh, that is garnered for this 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 uh, character Richard Allen, uh, because he yeah. doesn't seem at this point to be as oh that's the guy that did it as let's say a John Wayne Gacy, and that's the whole thing right. here that it's very odd now when when there is you know um, no no I have to imagine no DNA no fingerprints if evidence was lacking a why did the district attorney even sign off on the arrest what is the importance 
of going after this man with less than sterling evidence and so much secrecy? That is a um, that that's a that's number one big question that I have. What is the What's the reason for doing that with less than sterling evidence and going after him with so much secrecy and so much roadblocks from the from the from the judge to the police departments and everything? And uh, and then the second question I would give you before we move away from this topic, uh, Bob, is if not Richard Allen, then who? Well, I, I think it like <laughs> so. To go to your first question. Uh, the answer, I. I could tell you what the defense opined, and that was that it was an election cycle and that this arrest was happening right in time for the election for the sheriff, Um, and they wanted to effectuate an arrest on this thing. And they had Allen, and they they had dug up this this, statement where he put himself at, at the bridge. And then they went and talked to him, and he said, oh, yeah, he's like, yeah, I still have the blue Carhartt jacket. And yeah, I still have the sh- like the pants, you know. It's like like everything that he's saying, like in terms of you think of like your typical killer, typically is going to dispose of evidence that may connect them to a crime, you know. Yet this guy has everything. He says, yeah, I still have my forty caliber weapon. Why, you know, like he doesn't know about the bullet. So like those things, you know, why they went on it, it's hard to know, man. I, I mean, like typically. The prosecuting office for any county in any state is not in the business of getting their ass handed to them in a trial. Mm-hmm. You know, typically they want to go with, with as strong of a case as they can. I think that what they thought is that he was connected, and, and I think that they went on a bit of a fishing expedition. I think that they thought when they got his electronic devices, I think that they thought that they were going to get something on him, that they were going to be able to, to hook it up to sell you bright. And they're going to be able to extract everything, you know, because Cellubrite, nothing's deleted from your phones out there, kids, just so you know. Like things that you think are deleted, text, pictures, it's all still like buried in the hard drive. So like just just so you know. So they, I, I think that they thought that they were going to get them, like that they get all because people don't understand. Like, a, like an investigation does not end when an arrest happens. It, right. it really is just beginning. You know, I mean, they have more access to the defendant and all of his property and, you know, the people that he knows, that, that that's where they really start digging into people. I mean, look what, like, what I think we're going to talk about next, Hewerman. Look at what they started doing with him. You know, they're going down to South Carolina. They're going out to Nevada. You know, I mean, like, the investigation really hit full stride. So I think that they ended up not finding anything else. Well, the, and now they're so dug into it, like, what are they going to do? I know. You know, I, and, and, I, and I think the answer becomes that this whole thing because so like before we move on so what happened today so like on the on halloween judge says looks at richard allen in the face and says you know with his two two original lawyers <laughs> paul Lewin and rosie standing right there she says mr allen i understand that your desire is to have these two men represent you for the trial that is your entire life depends on but i can't do it in good conscience I've made a finding that they were uh, grossly negligent in your in their representation of you, so I, I can't allow them to do it. I'm sorry. And so, boom, that was, that was it. So she points these two guys from her county. One of the guys is just coming off a suspension by, by the disciplinary committee. Uh, Damn. Yeah, like I won't get into the facts. So that, dude, it's like, and like from from all appearances, he appears to be calls lackey. 
and like I, I'm not shooting from the hip here. I mean, like I, I like I've had people give me the information of why he was disciplined, and it's you know it, it, it's not a good look. It's not a good look for anybody. So so originally the first they filed what's called a petition for a writ of mandamus, which is where you're asking a higher court for an extreme remedy. You're saying, look, higher court, we need you to come down here and tell the lower court that they either have to do this or not do this. So it's, it's a very extreme remedy. And so they, they did it with respect to her pulling everything off the docket. And then today, uh, what filed, what got filed was another uh, petition for a writ of mandamus seeking to get her pulled off the case, seeking to get both lawyers reinstated and for them to stay the trial, meaning delay it until this all gets worked out. So that's where we're at right now, man. It's incredible. And it, it almost, and, and what you're describing is so convoluted that it almost, over the course of just our conversation, you forget about the two dead girls. And right. it's just like, what what are we even talking about here? There is some kind of like a side battle that is building up that almost seems unrelated to the the, the pursuit at what the hell happened. Um, I, I just I it, agree, man. It's, it's very odd. To answer your question real quick, there's five alternate suspects named in the memo, like by name. That was one of the things she did. Like one of the guys, this, this guy Elvis Fields confessed to two of his sisters that he was at the scene that when the girls were killed. They then go to interview him. They they, they then give the, they put them both on a, a lie box to give them both polygraphs and just to confirm that what they're saying to law enforcement that he actually said it. There was no indication of deception from either of them, meaning that it seems that Elvis Fields told both his sisters that he was there the, the day the girls were killed and that he had new brothers. And, you know, so, and then they were able to make a connection between this guy and this, this Brad Holder, who, if you look at his Facebook page, is an Odinist. Mm-hmm. No question. He's an Odinist. Like, although there are people that are openly celebrating their Odinistic beliefs on Facebook, which is their prerogative. Fine. But, you know, so like, they've got these five individuals who these three other cops really liked for it. And they're the alternate suspects. So that's the answer to your question. So we got to see. Not named individuals. So, so, oh, but here is the last thing I'll say about this. So Elvis Fields, when they interview him, goes up to this, this Murphy, who's one of the three cops who decided to keep investigating the Odinism angle. And, and this is Elvis Fields. says, hey, I just wanted to ask you. And the cop's in his car after he interviewed him, sitting outside of the vehicle. And he says to him, for, like verbatim, so... I just wanted to ask you, if I spit on one of the girls, if you found my spit on one of the girls, but I had an explanation for it, would I still get in trouble? And they did nothing with it. So, I mean, look, all I can tell you about this is when lawyers like this are fighting this hard, they believe their client's innocent. Yeah. Like, that's all I could like. You just need to know, like, this is what it looks like to zealously represent a guy that you believe is innocent with all your heart. This See? is what it looks like. I, it, I, I guess, in knowing all this, I did not know, I knew what I wanted to ask you. I didn't know exactly what answers I was going to get. But this, uh, what you are concluding with right now about the lawyer's conduct and, and what it shows that they believe about the, um, the, the case and, of course, their 
their client's involvement. It, it, this is the opposite of exactly what we started off with with John Wayne Gacy. And how does a defense attorney um, handle a case in which they know that not only is their client guilty of these crimes, but they are an irredeemable monster? And um, and right. and this is the exact opposite. And you can see. You can exactly. see just so I think that that's great how that all kind of bears out here. Now, um, yep. obviously, I'd love to have you back to keep keep uh, plugging away at this as new information comes to light. But I because we don't have all night, uh, I'd love to spend the last ten. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to spend the last ten minutes or so on the Long Island serial killer because this one is a little bit more high powered. Um, it's a it's it's this is actually crazy. So in the last year. We had the arrest of this uh, man, Rex Hewerman, who was charged with murdering uh, four of the 11 people that were found in the swamps out in uh, Long Island that we started finding these bodies. The, 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 um, the headlines started being made about a decade or so ago. I remember that. Um, what, what was your big takeaways uh, uh, been on that front up to the uh, the press conference that was held on October 18th, because that was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, so my my take on it was first and foremost, it was great great police work when they when they put it all together. Uh, look, I, I'm I'm a defense attorney by trade. We are you are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law like that it's, it's a requirement like if people online are always like oh that's a court thing i'm like no it's a presumption of innocence is for all of us we're all presumed innocent if we ever get picked up on a crime and we want it that way you don't want to have to go into a court putting the burden on the defendant to prove that they're innocent you want that burden on the state it's their burden entirely to prove that somebody's guilty so that being said I still am allowed as a as a an event like an individual human being to have an opinion, and I think that 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 bail application, in terms of the way it laid out the investigation and the evidence they have, leans heavy, heavy guilty that Rex Uerman's the right guy. Well, and then when you look at him, you know it's like he fits. Like I I got a like I got a complete Gacy vibe off that guy the first time I laid eyes on him. But here's the thing. Like uh, dead eyes. this is this is where it gets big. Um I'm going to read a couple a little bit of my notes from this uh from this this press conference that uh, attorney John Ray had about the uh, about the case about a week or so ago. And here's what it came out well what it came out with. So pretty much back in the 1990s a um, a woman and her boyfriend they go to a a swinger club called La Trapeze or something like that, and uh, in, in, and that club is near Rex Hewerman's office in Manhattan. And while they're at this club, they see an advertisement for a party in Massapequa, and the woman will call her ex and her boyfriend decide to go to that party, but they make a stop first. And they pick up another wor- a woman who is a, a prostitute. And they bring right. the prostitute along with them to this party in Massapequa. Now, X says that the woman that they picked up became nervous, but she made, uh, uh, she's made less nervous when she finds out that X's boyfriend is actually NYPD detective and narcotics division guy. So now X and her NYPD narcotics boyfriend and the prostitute that they picked up 
Go to this house in Massapequa. It is the home of Rex Hewerman and his wife. Rex Hewerman's wife is present for all of these, uh, all of the the orgy shenanigans. So the wife definitely, we, we, we learned from this press conference, the wife definitely is involved in some way or has some kind of direct knowledge of the things that Rex is doing. Um, at least in my opinion, that's what I would have to assume. So we have this narcotics cop that goes to the swingers party. They leave the prostitute there and... Uh, and also, the, the the cop has sex with Hewerman, too. So there, there's gay sex going on. And the prostitute that we, we learn about that they picked up before they went to Massapequa is the woman, Karen Vergata, uh, who is right. one. She, but, and here's the, the other crazy thing. She is one of the 11 bodies, the 11 victims that were found out in, in the, the swamps out there. But she is not one of the four that Hewerman has been charged with. And accused of killing so what does Correct. this what does this indicate to you that she is one of the 11 but not one of the four uh, that there's that there a there's in, at least in some respect police involvement even if it's just an individual and that the bodies uh, seem to be in some kind of a communal dumping ground was this a a snuff network or have we just yet to, to tie Hewerman to the other seven bodies yeah, I think I think it's the latter uh, because, like, and, and John Ray, you know, if you hadn't heard of him before, like, when Hewerman first got arrested, he came out and he had done a presser. And John, like, John Ray's a very flamboyant lawyer, man. But love him or hate him, the guy's an advocate. Like, he's a victim's advocate. He truly, and, and he's kept like Shannon Gilbert's name out in the public's mind for forever. And he, he really does advocate for these people trying to get these things solved. And, and it's him doing the, like the digging, mm. like for these affidavits, you know? So he's coming up with these things, coming up with these witnesses. And that's why when he gave his first press conference and he like just flame throat Asa, Hewerman's wife saying she's complicit. She knows he knew this at that time. And he said, you know, you'll see, you'll see, I've got proof of it, and this was the proof of it no. for the, the this this press conference. So I, I think that ultimately what they're going to need, because my buddy Joe Jackalone, who's got a, a YouTube channel that everybody should check out, he actually inter- interviewed Ray after the presser. And, you know, he, he was asking him, because we were both a little critical of Ray, like after the, the initial one where he's kind of putting, like, the wife on blast because she just looks so, you know, and it's like that thing. You're like, man, how could she not know? You know, she's living under the same roof with the guy. How could she not know anything? Is it willful blindness or is she culpable? You right. know, I mean, yeah, your mind just goes there. Right? Like, it, it's, like, common sense is going to dictate that she had to know something, right? Yeah. So, like, the, everyone's thinking that. So, at any rate, you know, you've got these statements made by made by these witnesses and the media, like you, when you're reading the statement and, you, and you're seeing like the affidavit, you're you're talking about like she remembered two big shells being there. Like they need they need connective tissue beyond just the witness statements to verify a hundred percent that it was Huberman's house. You know, I mean, they obviously seem to give like the ogre description of the guy. You know, it seems to fit, but like for them to feel secure and start tacking on those homicides onto the list for Hewerman, they need more, you know, and now we just find out that Rodney Harrison's stepping away, you know, like everyone was championing him and like everyone was so happy when the arrest was made. 
and now we're finding out that the politics are still, you know, rearing their ugly head like they always do in this shit. Mm. You know, like when law enforcement can't play nice together because everybody wants credit for the bust and everyone wants credit for this and that instead of just trying to work together to try to, to, to get the guy. And, you know, it's like that stuff always happens. And it didn't happen. It was like initially they were all sitting there. If you remember that presser when, when Hewerman was arrested, I mean, I, like, I couldn't have, I couldn't remember a press conference with more cops thanking other cops than that thing ever. Like every department, like, hey, I want to thank you. You know, I mean, it was like a love fest. And then, you know, now it seems like we're backsliding into what we were into before when we really need to be digging in because we're so close to getting links and they just need to get the evidence. Now, the question is, if if Hewerman's wife is complicit, are those things that she remembers explicitly from the house still there, doubtful, now that he's put the, the affidavit out there? You know what I mean? If those shells were there, they're not anymore. You know what I'm saying? Now what we need to hope is when they went in and they tore the house apart and probably took thousands of photographs, that somehow one of those photographs unwittingly caught these shells in there. We need something to substantiate what the witnesses are saying right. in order for them to get to the point to make the arrest for those particular victims. You know, so, yeah, man, it was it was mind-blowing. Uh, the affidavits were both, like, like blew your hair back type stuff, man. It's like, man, like, it's, it's crazy. So, right. yeah, it's just like the last 12 months with Idaho 4, with Delphi arrests, with fewer men arrest have been insane in the true crime world. Dude. Well, I got to tell you, the next time you come on, and I really, I want to, I'm going to wrap up the call now because I, I really do appreciate you, you toughing it out while you're driving. And, uh, but I, when oh, you're, when pleasure. you're, when you're back home and you're able to, uh, fire up the webcam and we can sit back and talk, I'd love to talk about Idaho four. Um, I'd also love to talk about, uh, whatever you can about what you were just doing over the last 24 hours, because I looked into that when you told me what it was and man, uh, that leads me right to a big question. I've, uh, I've, uh, I've wanted to talk with someone like yourself for a long time, and that is about uh, cases that look slam dunk. The person is going down, but then uh, in actuality, oh wait, wait a second, they may actually not be the killer. And I want to, I want right. to talk about this at some point. But uh, in the meantime. Thank you for doing this round robin with me and uh, and getting to know the audience a little bit. Let everybody know I have your link tree in the description of this episode, so they'll be able to click through to multiple sites of yours and channels. But uh, anything that you want to plug coming up, go right ahead, my friend. Yeah, man. Uh, obviously, if, if the Delphi thing uh, piqued your interest, we're we're knee deep in that thing. Like I'm I'm boots on the ground in that thing. I'm actually. You know, like I, I was actually helping uh, get the the writ that was filed or the petition filed. I, I was I was helping the attorney out with that. Uh, so I, I, I'm like involved with that. Like I, like anytime I think that there's a potential injustice, I can't sit idly by and just let it go unchecked. And like there's something stinks about that case. And like you said, you know what's getting lost in all of this? Mm -hmm. Those two girls and that always has to be at the forefront of our minds. And justice is not served unless the right person or persons are convicted of the crimes, period. That's not like just arresting someone and convicting someone 
that they didn't commit the crime is not justice for the girls or their families. So, you know, and, and something's off about it, man. I, I, I just, I can sense it. And like, I mean, I'm not going to start like pointing fingers and making, like, I, I'm a just facts guy. So I stick to the facts, but the way that it looks to me, something's up and everyone should really check out my podcast, man. I do super deep dives. The Gacy thing is next level. Frank, if you haven't listened to it, you should do it. I'm going to have like, to now, yeah. Don't blow your mind. I, 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 pro- I promise you, dude. It's like, aside from the Gacy tapes, which, which like, listening to that creep talk, like, this is no Gacy fanboy shit, man. Like, I, I'm, I'm focusing on the victims, the investigation, the arrest, and the trial. And, you know, like, I, I just put together, it's a masterpiece, and I'm, I'm not shy about saying it because it is. It's, it's like, I got the, the lead prosecutor to, to, like, I closed the series out. He performed, he's 82 years old in his own home, and he performed his entire closing argument. And that's how I ended the series. Like, the only people in that fucking courtroom, oh, sorry, I don't know if you swear. The yeah. only people in that courtroom heard that. And it's like, dude, it's, it's next level. And beyond that, I uncovered the incredible story of how they really got Gacy arrested, which will blow everyone's mind. Like, I can't believe it's not national news. It made it, like, locally. It's like... You just got to listen to it. I'm not going to give you a spoiler. Well, you know, that's so the whole thing. The what, what, what you got, what you have there, what you're describing, because I haven't, I haven't listened to it, but what you're describing is very unique stuff because, of course, you're, you, you have the link, this very intimate link to the, the, the case with your father and the materials that were given directly to you. So aside from yeah. you, aside from you having um, exclusive materials, you also have the, uh, the passion for the work and, um, and, and, and the means to put it together. So I'm sure it's wonderful and, uh, and we'll start digging into it. And thanks again, uh, Bob Mata for, for being on tonight and send my best to your wife and drive safe. I shall, Frank. Thanks, man. It was a real pleasure, and uh, I look forward to hanging out again, man. Oh, we will. We certainly will. Have yourself a good night. You too, brother. All right. Take care. There you go. Bob Mata, Defense Diaries. You can find all that through the link tree that I have in the description of the episode. And um, I'm going to take a really quick break for intermission. We come back, and we're going into your Super Chats and your calls and uh, and whatever the hell else comes to mind in the last half hour. Don't go anywhere. It's intermission time, folks. Time out to press the like button. Thank you. Ladies and Welcome to intermission. We'll, we'll be right back. Quite frankly. 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 Qu
Bob's gonna be a great return guest. You can all, you can already. Uh, that's gonna be great. Be I mean, a lot of good things we'll be able to do in the future. That's for sure. That was a wonderful meeting him. Uh, let's see. All right. I have some super chats here. We're gonna go across. Quite frankly, superchat.com. Which, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to send a super chat, just uh, click the QR code on the screen. Across, quite frankly, That's it. Just put your camera up to the television screen, screen and uh, boom, click it. And then you can send your thought into the show and whatever you want to say. It doesn't matter. You can also just say hello. All right. Quite frankly, superchat.com. First one up is Stow Stoops. It's great Monday, Frank and Franklies. Off to another great week of listens. Thank you, Frank. Jay Britz says, hey, Frank, great guest. I'm really liking Bob Mata's vibe. Me too. Me too. And you're going to like him a lot more when he has a proper microphone and he's not driving for hours and hours. He's been driving pretty much all day because he's uh, gone to be present for another trial he's getting involved with that is... Uh, it's harrowing. It's harrowing, the story. Um, but... Uh, but it's it's also pretty incredible. So I would love to I'd love to jump into all of that. And I know it'll be good. It'll be good to have him on. All right, guy Katie Skye says, Frank, why do we change positions if it's the same hole? I guess I'll just never understand golf. Yes, very, very confusing golf. I don't get any of it. Let's see. Over on quite frankly TV, powered by Pilled.net and Foxhole, which I'm so happy to be jumping into a new venture uh, with them and quite frankly.tv in the coming days. That's going to be really, really great. I'm, I'm very excited about it. And JSF says, hello, here's a cookie. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay Sim, Robert Sarns, Tam Growl. This ought to be good. And it was good, wasn't it? Patriot Game, thank you. Witchy Poo says hello to all you fine Franklies. C. Blanche, Porpoiseful, Reggie V. Eric Allen says well put, well done. Reggie V said cheers. Wow, there's a lot of new faces in there already getting uh, acquainted with the uh, the gold pill system. This is wonderful. C. Blanche says amen. Witchy Poo, can we get to 10K tonight again? Let's go. Casey, thank you so much. Sean Joe, thank you. Then Wichipu dropped fleets and cookies, killing me over here. Thank you so much. 
Uh, Witchy Poo again says, Christmas cookies for everybody. You know, I love Christmas cookies. I'm sure you all do too. Thank you, Sean. Chai Possum is rounding it out with uh, three cookies of their own. My last cookie, so enjoy, says Witchy. Uh, Tweak says, ask this guy if statutes supersede the Constitution. Oh, well, I did not see this in time, but uh, no. No, they don't. No, they do not. Uh, uh, statutes on a local level, on a local level, in a local case, uh, as long as it, it is, uh, it, it goes and it agrees with the state's constitution, it's very easy. Those questions are very easy to answer yourself. Now, the, the, the here's the other thing that you have to deal with. You deal with in uh, whenever we're, we have these conversations about what is, what's the norm in America and uh, what is constitutional and what isn't and this and that. We're always coming from the standpoint of how was it written, how was it codified, how was it ratified, and then how do we live today, based on bad traditions and mistakes that have been made into uh, norms and uh, legal precedent that somehow illegally takes hold over uh, what is superseding law, which is the Constitution, the federalist system that we have. So uh, there's always the reality of things in the law, and then there is the, uh, the, the top layer of things, which is the facade. And the facade often gets, you know, cracked, it flakes away, it gets patched up, it gets painted over, then it gets another paint job. So it takes on all these different forms, and all the while, the, the baseline beneath it, the Constitution, usually gets completely forgotten about and uh, demeaned as some kind of an old, inflexible document that is not compatible with modern living, when it's really just about allowing lawyers to take the world over. I'm sure that Bob Mata feels the same way. He's an attorney, okay? I'm sure he feels the same way. I'm sure he, like me, whenever I hear so-and-so constitutional attorney, unless you know them, unless I know, like Chris Ann Hall, I know she's a, she loves the Constitution. I understand that. But most people that you see on television and everywhere else, so-and-so, isn't Obama a constitutional attorney? What do you think he went to school for? People like him go to school to learn how to circumvent the Constitution. So, there's always that. Um, so, I would have to say that Bob would say that statutes, um, they do not supersede the Constitution. But rather, especially in a state case that doesn't cross uh, state lines and be cre uh, you know be federal in some way, as long as statutes are in accordance with the state, that state's constitution, that would be it. And if I'm wrong, we'll see next time he's on. All right. Um, Witchy-poo just bought a three-month diamond tier subscription. And you know, over there on quitefrankly.tv in the chat room, powered by Foxhole, you can just throw subscriptions out to anybody and people can claim them. And those subscriptions, they get you all of the universal perks that monthly, uh, monthly sponsorship of this show gets you. That is the Sunday office hours access, that is book club, that is anything else that we do that is exclusive to just uh, sponsors. 
it, that is as legitimate as anything as Patreon, a subscribe star, and directly through quite frankly.tv. So those four things always remember. Uh, thank you, C. Blanche. Seems a mystery. Prayers for the family. It's a mystery if you're talking about Delphi. The mystery is again, why is this battle between the attorneys and the judges and the police department before them and all of this happening? Why is this all happening? You know, um, it's it's just very weird. Very big mystery, indeed. Porpoiseful and Chai Possum says, show us your shirt. That's weird. Uh, I mean, you guys have seen this shirt before. It's how to pick up chicks. You simply walk up to the chick and you pick it up. Aurora loves this. She said, she said, well, who's that guy? I said, who? I said, this guy? And she goes, is he picking up a chicken? I said, yes. Yes, this is a shirt about how to pick up chickens. So, she gets it. Anyway. All right. All right, all right. Let's go and uh, let's take some calls. 914-200-0269. It would uh, be great to have some of you calling in and let me know what you think about things. Uh, Tracy sent me something. What is this? This is from Jim Jordan an hour ago. Bombshell report on the censorship industrial complex. Hundreds of secret reports show how DHS and CISA, the GEC, Stanford and others worked together to censor Americans before the 2020 election, including the information, jokes, and opinions. Federal government disinformation experts at universities, big tech, and others worked together through the Election Integrity Partnership to monitor and censor American speech. Okay. According to the, the one EIP members, uh, uh, member, the EIP was created at the request of CISA. The head of the EIP has also said that the EIP was created after working on some monitoring ideas with CISA. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, there's going to be more on this. Let's take this call, though. This might, be, uh, this might be highly relevant. What's going on, Frank Zell? What do you think about Bob Mata? Oh, Bob Mata's tremendous, man. That He's like... The old school, you know, uh, defense attorney, extremely passionate. It comes through even over the phone, man. It, it's a shame you didn't have him on Zoom, but it went well, man, for for the kind of case that, that, that it is. And especially the last year and especially the last 10 weeks when so much has transpired, you and Bob did a great job. You know, uh, you know, recap Bob tremendous job recapping the case. You know, you did a great job, you know, asking the right questions. So yeah, it was tremendous. Well, I really uh, enjoyed it. So I mean, you and uh, and Jim, we talk a lot about this stuff. Um, where I know this is really up your alleys as well. So I got to credit you guys for keeping me in the loop on all this. I really uh, appreciate that. What um, what you th- what you think uh, as far as as far as the, uh, as far as Long Island, let's start there first, because honestly, that was when I, when I watched that um, that press conference with what's his name, John Ray. Uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe what the hell he was saying as far as the the timeline of events, 
the the girls, the the NYPD uh, narcotics guy, the, everything, the wife of Hewerman, uh, anything that you guys want to throw into the mix there? Okay, oh, yeah, it, it, uh, Jim. Oh, by the way, my brother's on the call. Oh, what's up, Jim? Yeah. <laughs> the Zells uh, are here. In there. <laughs> hey, hey, Frank. Hey, <laughs> Frank. You, uh, Bob, touched on it. Uh, you brought it up. You know that 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 presser was I don't know, ten days ago, two weeks ago. And as me and my brother, uh, as I was watching it, you know, I called my brother and I said something very strange is happening at this press conference because. You know, he's an attorney, a defense attorney, who represents the family, you know, of the victims, you know, Shannon Gilbert's family. And he's done a tremendous job, John Ray, uh, of keeping, you know, Shannon Gilbert, you know, he's, he's helped propel the, the case forward. When for there 13 was nothing, years. <laughs> yeah, but when there was nothing being done, John Ray kept it alive in the press. So... Like Bob said, whether you love him, whether you hate him, he, he's done a tremendous job. But at this present, the Suffolk County uh, Police Commissioner is standing next to him. When do you ever see that? That right. was, to me, I was like, what is he doing there at this presser? You know, he should, you know, why is he not, why is he there? It was bizarre to me. But Harrison, uh, the commissioner, he's the one that that pretty much got this made that that helped make the arrest. Nothing was getting done. The investigation was botched. I mean, botched is the more that stuff is coming out. Botched is a very weak word. They did nothing. They didn't want this case out. When Harrison took over, he said that he was going to release the tapes. The 911 calls, he was going to release stuff. He, he, he upheld his word. Every promise he made, he was going to start a task force. He was going to bring in the state police. He was going to bring in the FBI. He was going to make an arrest. He did everything. And now he's gone. Hmm. And John Ray and that commissioner, they were, they were allies. And he's and that commissioner said something at that presser where when he spoke, he looked into the cameras and he said, you know, we need, you know, any more witnesses out there, they you know, want to come forward. If you don't want to talk to us, the police, talk to John Ray. Why wouldn't why wouldn't you want to talk to the cops? Yeah. Not, very yeah, very strange. It's very strange. So, it, it makes me well. The first question I have, and you let me know if I'm off off the mark on this one, is uh, they suspect that there's more police involvement, and okay. and, and they well, want to root it out, and and perhaps that's that's giving making uh, anybody that would want to come forward be a little bit more apprehensive because they don't want to be on any kind of uh, uh, dirty cops radars. I don't know. I, I mean, well, well Jimmy, let me just finish up with Harrison. So, you know, Harrison, after that presser, shortly thereafter, he announces his resignation. Part of it is politics. You know, they're going to have a new county exec, and usually the county exec comes in, they appoint their own person. Usually. Sometimes they they keep the, the commissioner that's in place. I think it was a little bit of both. I think it was, I think Harrison maybe had a feeling he was going to get replaced, even though he just accomplished something tremendous 
that it would have been hard the the candidates that or the candidate that took over would have been hard pressed to do it i think he he rather would step down than be replaced and plus the cops were not too happy with him especially the original detectives on the case he took heat for being at the presser uh <laughs> cops weren't happy with that just the fact that he made an arrest uh embarrassed all the detectives that worked the case beforehand and we're going to go into why so that press conference talks about the woman art and the boyfriend rw who's a narcotics detective i think out of prospect park this is back in the 90s it brings up so many questions okay number one Frank. that cops that cops in trouble rw is in trouble whoever that is because he picked up a prostitute and you can't assort with any criminal element when you're a cop. So right off the bat, he's he's in trouble. Mm -hmm. And then you bring that prostitute to the house of a serial killer. And then when you see her in distress, when it's pointed out to you, look, she's running outside naked, freaking out. Should we take her with us? No, they're just playing the game. And then you leave her there. And that's the day she died. Yeah, that so now for everybody at home, that's that's the uh, that's another thing that came out in this press conference is that when the cop and his girlfriend were pulling away from Huberman's house to leave, the prostitute that they brought to the uh, to the house is 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 trying to escape the house, running out naked, in distress, trying to get the hell away, and uh, the girlfriend of the cop is like, hey, she looks like she needs help, maybe we should bring her back home, and he was very dismissive, said, no, no, that's just a game they play, let's just go. And uh, she ends yeah. up she ends up dead, and again, this is one of the one of the people that he hasn't been charged with yet. Okay, so, so that's, that's that press conference. Now you go into last night's interview, now, Frank, wait, wait, let me wait. let me let me chime in here because ahead, before man. you go in before you go into the interview, you got to look at a there was a podcast a couple of years ago, okay, that focused on Whisk, right, the Long Island serial killer, and this particular podcast focused on a community, um, Oak Beach, okay. There was uh, the old commissioner. Um, his name was James Burke. This guy. Well, he, was the, he, was, was, he wasn't the commissioner. Not, not, he was the police chief. Yeah, not not, not the, the commissioner. Police chief. Police chief. Yes. Thanks for, thanks for the correction. The old police chief, James Burke. There was a guy who was who was a, you know a heroin addict, a thief, broke into Burke's house, or and 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 he took some and he took some material from his house. He took uh, pornography, um, sex toys, and there was a videotape. And when he was arrested for breaking into Burke's house. No, it wasn't. I, I don't think it was his house. Jim. I think it was his car. Was his car? Okay. Yeah. Uh, he was arrested, and Burke beat the daylights out of him in, in the uh, in the precinct where he took him. And eventually, Burke was, uh, you know, tried for that for that for beating Christopher Loeb is the guy who found the videotape and took the videotape. On the videotape, Loeb said that there was uh, S and M material. Um, he called it a snuff film. And it was in Burke's possession, right? Burke was a guy who, who lived at Oak Beach. There was multiple uh, swinger parties that were taking place at Oak Beach. His podcast 
focused on the party, the community of Oak Beach and what they were doing there. And they were trying to tie in that something happened in this community that was leading to possibly some of these dead bodies. Swinging parties gone bad, in other words. Burke was actually looked at as a possible suspect at the time of being involved in this. So what you have is you have Oak Beach community and you have this new information that's coming out with Huerman colliding. And it's very possible that Huerman probably uh, participated. See? some of these parties in Oak Beach. See, so they, they collide here. So when I, when I was asking Bob tonight, you know, when I said, uh, you know, what does this indicate to you? I guess you're, you're, you would actually say, uh, you, you would say the latter as well. Was this a, a, a snuff network uh, that this is a place where there was some police involvement there. The bodies uh, were being dumped in what seemed to be a communal dumping grounds where it wasn't just one guy doing it all, terrorizing Long Island, that this was probably a a place where people of the same ilk would, uh, you know, know is, a, uh, is, a, is neutral grounds for everything that they do together in one way or another, that there's overlap. John Ray pretty much came out in this last interview that he did yesterday and said, it's not just human. It's most likely a group of men. Yep. Hmm. With human. And he says that he's got, he's getting, he's got affidavits from new witnesses that are saying things. And, and the person doing the interview with John Ray wasn't picking up on what on what John Ray was laying down. You know what I mean? John Ray no. was trying was trying to subtly hint at things, and the interviewer was not picking it up. He was he was saying, "Well, you know, the police force is a bureaucracy, and they like things narrow, hmm. not broad." Yeah, they don't like to expand the investigation. They like to keep it narrow, and that's it. No expansion uh, of the investigation. And that's what John Ray is worried about with the new administration, that they won't dig into the new evidence that has come forward, and they won't expand it to where these new trails are leading. Another, and, another, and I, quote, another quote that John Ray said last night was he, he said that he believed Huberman acted Humerman acted what he was doing with impunity. Now, me and my brother have been doing this for decades. Whenever you have people who are into things like this and they act like nothing can happen to them, you better believe it's one of two things. They're either politically protected or they're cop protected. That's it. I mean, John Ray went on to say Humerman was incredibly sloppy. He was no genius. He left trails everywhere, right? But for, for well over a decade, they could not find them, right? Harrison comes in, sets up a task force, brings in the state police. It took 30 minutes for a woman detective to find human. Just like that. All you had to do was look. Why couldn't, why couldn't they do it for the last 10 years? Uh, they they didn't, John Ray was actually saying it's miraculous. It must have been a miracle. No, 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 wait. It was supernatural that this man wasn't caught. As sloppy as he was, how was that possible? Like and he was being... Said, because he, there had to be some type of protection. 
he was being extremely he was being extremely sarcastic because he was being interviewed by a former cop so he was mocking the original detectives by saying you know it's supernatural See, now take now take it back to where Human's office was, 10 minutes from La Trapeze, the sex club, that was frequented by other cops in the area. And not to mention, that wasn't the only swing club. There was other swings clubs that were on Long Island that, that, that people attended, that police officers attended. Long Island in Massapequa. In Massapequa. <laughs> and, and actually, one of the organizers of that sex club in Massapequa was from Oak Beach, that community. So you got right. this little this little enclave in Oak Beach, right? Shannon Gilbert, she's the one that kicked it all off. She leaves the house of the guy's last name is Brewer. Her driver brings her there. She freaks out, calls nine one one. When they finally release the 911 tapes, she's slightly disoriented, uh, slightly disorientated. She's extremely upset, and she's saying they're trying to kill me. She's not saying he's trying to kill me. She's saying they're trying to kill me. Mm. She then leaves Brewer's house, starts knocking on doors of other homes, and then people start calling the police saying, hey, there's somebody knocking on my door. And it's it's just the little things that John Ray's bringing up, saying like, why was this not done? This goes to show you they didn't they didn't want to do anything because these people are wealthy. For example, Peter Beckett. <laughs> two days after Shannon goes missing, he calls Shannon's mother and says, "Oh, hi, yeah, I just let you know your daughter's all right." She's with a guy. The guy took her to a house for wayward ladies. You know, I gave her some medication. She's, but she's she's fine. Don't worry about it. When the cops go to him and say, "Why did why did you call Why did you call her?" He lies. I didn't call her. And then when they get to show him the phone records, he's like, "Oh, I did call her, but uh, wow. I didn't say what she says. I said, yeah, I don't remember what I said." Talk, yeah, and the talk. cops. Jeez. The cops write it off as ah, he's just he just does things like that. Peter Beckett sells his house, goes to Florida. He needs to be brought back in. Brewer needs Brewer needs to be gone over again. Yeah. <clears throat> and not not to not to mention Joe Brewer's next door neighbor was Monsignor Plaka, who was charged or was accused of child sexual abuse at the Rockville uh, Center uh, church scandal. That so this is literally his next door neighbor. So this is just like I mean, as we always end up concluding, there is usually no one-offs. Oh well, it's usually never a one-off in something like this where you can see, you could just see so much, so much just bubbling to the surface. It, it, it can't ever just be one, one thing or one incident. There's got to be a larger network, an entire town, a city plugged into it or sometimes it's a global thing um uh it, 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 to, from what you guys have seen in the past i guess we'll end on this from what you guys have seen in the past is there anything about this that points to this network or this i don't know this country club of death mentality um uh, being being just a regional thing or is there is that is it just one stop along the way to an entire world of country clubs of death? 
All right. I mean, like uh, you said, you you, you got right. stuff like this that happens all over. Okay, this isn't something that's just a, this happens all over the country and all over the world. You have these little places that people get together and they commit these type of acts. It happens. Um, in this particular case, you know, Huerman, Ray even said that Huerman operated in groups of people. Okay, it was very interesting how he said that. He operated in groups of people. Now, how far these groups of people went with Huerman, it remains to be seen. Hmm. There, Ray even said that you may have to actually look at Huerman in, in, and the Catholic Church abuse in Long Island. Yeah, Ray, because he Ray may, a, he yeah. may have been involved in some of the abuse with some of the priests. I mean, Ray the stuff a, he was saying yesterday was incredible. Ray is alluding that this guy was prolific, multiple states, hmm. up and down the eastern seaboard, across the country. Yeah, he's connecting them to, to Catholic school uh, uh, abuse on Long Island. You know, Plaka, you know, the, the next door neighbor of. Uh, of Brewer, who he even he even admitted that she knocked on his door. So she she ran from Brewer's house thinking that she was going to die, which is what happened. And one of the doors she knocked on was a guy accused of abusing, of abusing kids. I I've been on calling your show for what five six years now. I've said it a million times. People probably think I'm embellishing or exaggerating when I talk about Boulder and how a town can go bad. You're watching it in lifetime play out. Nobody's really paying attention to it. This is a the Oak Beach community went something went seriously wrong, and then you got people involved took positions of power, like Burke, who became the police chief, who didn't let the state police in, who didn't let the FBI in, because they didn't want this coming out. This is going to involve other cops. You already got RW. You're going to find it's going to. To me, it's a matter of time before Burke connects to human. All a matter of time. Yeah, and, and, and it's now, very interesting. Go ahead, Frank. go ahead, Jim. That's what I'm saying. And oh. now, the the one guy who got stuff done is gone. So all they got to do now is bury it, and that's what John Ray's afraid of, because he's getting evidence every day, P- pouring in. Oh. Pouring in, and and Huerman, they also found uh, horrific child torture tapes in his house. You know, specifically young children. Interestingly enough, and uh, that guy who broke into uh, uh, Burke's car and, and found those videotapes, it's it's coming out now that on that uh, on that videotape was also kids as well. It's funny what Burke and Huerman had in common. Well, see, I, I can also see how you guys make the you draw the comparisons between this and places like Boulder, Colorado, with John Bonet. Well, I mean, the only reason see Boulder did it right, they didn't make an arrest. If you don't make an arrest, they kept it cold. And if you don't have an arrest, anytime anybody asks you a question about the investigation, all you got to say is we don't talk about an ongoing investigation. And nobody knows nothing. But when you make an arrest, then things start to leak out or discovery is shared with defense attorneys like in Delphi. And then all hell breaks loose. In Boulder, they kept their mouths shut. Me and my brother were able to find out what we found out about Boulder 
because we were looking at the town from the very beginning. But unfortunately, yeah, then, different era. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? just, just, just like a couple of things, you know, that there were, you know, four operating child pornography rings uh, in and around Boulder at the time of her death. That's just one small little fact. Or uh, more small or, fact that you had, yeah. uh, you had, you had, you had, uh, well-known attorneys in the area having outright sex parties that the police knew about. Yeah, the police, police knew about. Police protected. Police this protected. guy operated. <laughs> this guy operated twenty years from uh, seventy-seven to right after, right when John Bonet died, and then he he leaves. Just just stops being an attorney. Just quits everything and just leaves the state. Nobody says nothing. Never mind just oh. the countless other stories of of city officials and yeah nobody looked at the town but us but it was a different time and now nobody really gives a rip because it's close to 30 years and me and my brother are stuck with information and knowledge that uh you know we're stuck with but it it's the same <laughs> patterns in every case you well, can see it boulder delphi um and and delphi bob didn't talk about it as much about the, the, the police keeping ex exculpatory evidence away from the defense this is information that could prove this man's innocence they kept it hidden so they they so in this case they want richard allen to take the fall absolutely okay and i mean think about it frank they found sticks and you got and he didn't really talk about it too much but they found sticks arranged on on the on, on oh. the corpses some, right some true detectives now shit. you think that that, that yeah yeah true you think detectives. that, that, that that, that's prime evidence, right? You think that would be collected and taken in and studied and do forensics on it? No, nobody collected that evidence. They just let, they just thought the sticks there and um, until it got washed away, and then they went, oh, you know what? Weeks later, we should go back and collect that. But it was all washed away. You would think that we'd collect some samples off the tree with the blood patterns, right? Take some of the bark. You know, the runes. And, and, you know, and... And you yeah. think they would study that and, and put that under a microscope and look for DNA and this and that? No, they never collected any evidence like that. They just left it there. Like, well, why on earth are you leaving evidence? This is like police detective 101 stuff. Like, well, well, collect the, the evidence this is, on bodies. See, this, this is the stuff that it, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's uh, it it makes your blood boil. It gives you goosebumps, especially when you know because you said there's a lot of differences between now and thirty some odd years ago. Well, one of the differences now is that here we are without any commercial radio breaks, uh, with a, a nice large audience watching, with people who have uh, really a lot of pertinent um, experience in the field. You guys, Bob Mata, you know, we're, we're having these conversations right now. And whereas the, 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 the picture will become clearer and clearer, much to our dismay, there's also the reminder that, yeah, since, since John Bonet, 30-some-odd years, has passed and what has happened. And, uh, you know, we've seen so many things come and go uh, since then. You know, this Delphi stuff is going on. We're talking about Long Island serial killer. They're a little bit farther along the uh, farther along the road with that one. But, you know, it, it must be exceptionally frustrating for people like yourselves to have seen this over and over again. If you had the resources and if you had willing willing uh, participants to uh, to follow your lead, you'd probably be able to uh, crack a few more cases and bring a few more people to justice, but it just keeps floating by you like ships in the night. Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 frustrating, Ramsey, man. It's like, 
that's always been my main passion in life. You know, like it's what I've ever since I latched onto it. It's been my obsession, my passion. Why that case? Don't know. It just is. It's a calling, and to have it like just what is a line from a movie that I usually use. Like, I don't know if it's Field of Dreams. It's like seeing your dreams. In, in a crowd and have your dream just pass right by it. That's what it feels like. Like you came that close. We came that close with that case. We got closer than anybody ever did. And nobody gives a rip. Well, well, well you know, and to that point, if you want to, if you want to be made to, to feel a little bit better, even though it's not really something that's uh, very positive, but if you want to made to be, feel a little bit better, um, you know, these are all of the, the smaller cases that you think, should be bite size enough for local people of uh, with some good integrity, and I'm sure that there is some good police work being done out in the country, and that some real bad guys have been brought uh, to justice. But we're talking about things. We're talking about things, as you said, that are connected to larger networks, larger networks. That if you take you you pull on that you pull the string on that sweater. Uh, you're taking down local, regional, sometimes national governments. And those are the, we, we need a couple of wins there. And it, the fact that we're not getting them really makes you wonder about how many wins we're going to get on a global scale in, the, uh, in, in Eastern Europe or with a, uh, a presidential spying scandal or something else like that. It is, uh, it, this makes all of our loftier goals about justice being served really make, it makes it seem laughable to me. And I don't want to feel that way, but I have to imagine that everybody's starting to feel it too. Well, it is what it is, man. You're not going to get a win on a global scale. You can't get a win on a local scale. That's what I'm talking about. When, it, when you're talking like Lisk, this is a great example. This case is going to get buried. It's go, They're going to bury it. It's going to be human. And then that's it. There's no way that they're going to look into John Ray's information leading to other cops or other important people in that community. They're not going to look at Plaka the next-door neighbor of Brewer. Why? Because he works for Giuliana Partners, Giuliani Partners, Giuliani's firm. Why does he work with Giuliani's firm? Because he's a childhood friend of Rudy Giuliani. You know what's crazy? They've known each other since they were eight years old. So you think they're going to look at Plaka? Of course not. It's nuts because the other thing there, too, the other thing there, too, if you're paying attention to this in any kind of a uh, in any kind of a deeper way than whatever has been just dribbled out into the media, um, and especially if you live in Long Island, uh, you realize, holy shit, uh, if you live anywhere near those areas, you have to start suspecting even your own neighbors uh, to be a part of something that it has so thoroughly dominated the area. And that, but then, you know, I think about someone like myself, just me, uh, when you guys, I know that, uh, that there has not been a lot of movement on the Utah, uh, case recently, but you're always keeping your eyes open for that. But when you were, when you guys were rocking and rolling every week, new hot details about what was going on with Utah and the fact that it not only led them out of state to other parts of the country, it led them to Ukraine in some ways, but it also led you guys to my hometown to a street, to a, a house on a street that I pass by a few times, uh, you know, sometimes a couple of times a day. And I think about the horrors that were, what was, you know, the unspeakable horrors that was going on in a house only a couple of miles away from this studio right now. 
and and that was you know was that a one-off well if it was found locally it would have been talked about some guy on so-and-so avenue was uh, was abusing children and making their lives uh you know in, in many ways just damaged beyond repair but but little do, little would anybody know is that that would have connected to a scheme halfway across the country and probably halfway across the world it's just it's all around us it's in, it's insane it's so pervasive man it's it, hey, hey, i mean you know what Frank, right. there is you know like you said, you know, you got to fight the battles, you know, like globally, you're not fighting the, you, there's organizations, you got to really vet the organizations you give to the fight, you know, uh, child sex trafficking, child abuse. You can, you know, you find the, find the right group and you can give money to the certain groups that are actually got people on the ground and trying to fight the good fight. As far as going up the ladder and, and trying to get people higher ups, you're never going to really get that. But you can fight the local battles, I, I believe. And the human stuff, although being jaded as we are and seeing that it could possibly be buried and it could very well lead down that road, you don't give up the fight with it because, you know, I give John Ray credit. You know, he sees he kind of handwriting on the wall with a new commissioner coming in. Coming in. He's going to have a symposium on December 8th at, uh, in Rockville. <clears throat> and he's going to lay out all of the information that has come forward. He's just going to lay it out for public view. Yeah, and you know why? Very, and, he, and he's very smart to do that. Because he's smart because now that Harrison's gone and they're going to go <laughs> back to the way it was, you know, the status quo, back to doing nothing and just ending it with human. And meanwhile, this guy's getting information about cops and who, and who knows who else. You think he wants to be stuck with that and, and have him be like the, the carrier of the secrets? Rule number one, you don't want to be carrier of the secrets. So he's doing the smart thing. Have a symposium, invite reporters, hopefully people show up and just lay it all out there and hopefully a few reporters run with it and continue to put heat on the task force if it stays together <laughs> to broaden the scope of the LISC investigation because it's not just human, it's others. If All you right. haven't listened to that interview with John Ray and Joe Jacqueline, you, you need to listen to that. I will. And hear what he's saying. I will. And hear what he's saying because it, it, it's a group of people. And look, John Ray, you know, he's putting this, he's taking money out of his own pocket for this. This man needs to be, you know, he's a, he's got his own firm, but the amount of money he's spending trying to keep this going for 13 years, the, the way this investigation is broadening, going down the roads of possible police corruption or not possible <laughs> police corruption, police involvement, you know, you guys uh, should go, people. you guys should go to the, the, the December symposium. If, I mean, well, what, what, what's a great thing is it looks like they're going to stream it too. If, if oh. they stream it, that's great. It's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's on the Island. He's going to have it like in the afternoon on a Friday. It's almost impossible for me, you know, to get there on December 8th. Especially on a Friday, you know, during the holiday season. Yeah. So as long as he streams it, but you know, he's even he. It's so sad to see, man, because I've seen it time and time again, decade over decade, case after case after cases like this. This is what happens to people. You got John Ray's getting the information, doing what he can, doing what he can with it. He's taking money out of his own pocket. He's even saying that it's hurting him. And now we've got to lay it all out there 
and and I you know the true crime community is kind of exploding at this point with all these cases happening and I'm following people on Twitter and I'm seeing the great work they're doing great research man they can bring up affidavits in two seconds they can dig up two court records in, in a second it's a, you know they're really good at it but there's no investigation if you want to like if I was a younger man I just go to John Ray's law firm that's what I would have did if I was in my 20s I go there. I volunteer. I help. Anything I can do. That's how you do it. And he's looking for it. We're, he's, we're he's, long he's, in the tooth, man. We're long in the tooth. These people have to learn. If you want to actually make a difference, you got to get involved. Not just dig up affidavits. Not just talk about what you're finding. You got to make a difference. You got to do some kind of investigation, man. You got to put yourself out there. Well, and, and, and people don't giving, do it. he's giving that opportunity for people to hear the evidence, to come alongside him, to help him monetarily, to keep this investigation going of Hewerman and what other activities were taking place uh, in, in around that uh, Suffolk, Suffolk County. Well, I, I would say in, yeah, in, um, anyway. in conclusion is what you guys were just saying right there about getting up and uh, and, and getting involved and in, in doing the the only legitimate thing that can be done in helping out that could be the uh the the other edge to the sword of the the true crime phenomenon which you know it's it's a uh, is a rising genre and people uh eat it up um they spend a lot of time uh using logic and um and anything that is public publicly available to, uh, to to piece things together the, the interest is there but the distance from uh, anything that would be considered uh, helpful contribution is um, is just as wide as as anything else. So the though the interest is, I guess, the first step in in anything because thirty years ago, you guys were going out there and pining through information in Denver or in Boulder, and um, and all we were getting is the Inquirer. You know, there there was no there was no place there was no place for you guys to publish this on in the zeller dot com. We were getting we were getting the Inquirer. We were getting uh, you know uh, sixty minutes. We were getting Current Affair. We were getting all that. That that was it. I so mean, I mean, we had to make inroads through countless phone calls. You know, making connections. You know, especially my brother befriending uh, police officers involved in in the case. You know, heck, there was a reason my brother and I were invited out to Colorado by the former investigator for the Ramses to his house. Well, there was a reason we were there. There's a re- he wanted to share info. I mean, and he did. I mean, and there's a whole like, there's a whole story behind that. You know, that about that symposium. I mean, at this point, thirty years ago, I was sending. I worked for UPS, and I was, I was sending half of my check every week to an attorney representing a witness who came forward talking about child sexual abuse just to make sure that he was able to pay his bills while he represented her pro bono. That's what I'm talking about. Don't just talk about it. Do something. If you send money to the attorney that needs it, especially if they're representing somebody that you know they're going to take a lot of heat for, and there's a reason why that attorney no longer lives you know, in this country. One of a few people who had to leave the country because of that case. Anyway, Frank, we know you're running late, dude. 
Well, I appreciate you guys. Uh, this is like the B side to uh, this episode, <laughs> and I, and I'm I'm happy you called in because then we can just uh, you know it's one theme stretched all the way through, and we'll circle back to uh, to a lot of this I'm sure in the future. And and thanks again for helping me produce the show tonight because uh, you guys were the the reason why I even know who Bob Mata is, and uh, and and now that'll be a another great name in the Rolodex over here. Quite frankly. Well, we figured, you know, two guineas, you can't go wrong, can't right? go, You can never go wrong. Bring all the guineas over here. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like the guinea whisperer. That's it. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, yeah, guys. No, you guys, you guys. All right. That was a good interview, man. Again, thank you again for that. But I'll talk to you both soon, and thanks for everything. All right, all right Frank. Uh, all right, there you go. If I ever start a side podcast, it'll be called the guinea whisperer. And um, you know, I've been uh, I I downloaded with the with the at the request of a, a buddy of mine. I downloaded the uh, Babel app, and I paid for the entire year, whole twelve months of Italian. And I'm taking multiple multiple uh, uh, lessons a day, and so far I I pretty much know everything, but it's the repetition. So, one day, one day soon, I will be able. To say something obscene in Italian. Of course, that's all that this is about. How many? I have one of those hide these uh, hide this uh, Italian book books. So once I got the basics down, then I'll get back into that book and I'll make sure that I know all the horrendous things that you should never say in polite company. All right, thank you to Curious Patriot who sent a whole bunch of uh, gold pills. Says better be free range chickens on that damn shirt. Thank you. It probably is. And Strumbass says, great show. Thanks, Frank and Bob. And thank you to the Zells. I'm going to release the scratching right now. I just got a, uh, a text message that after the show tonight, the uh, true crime night continues as we feature the finest films, including the 2007 David Fincher epic. What would that be? What would be a 2007 David Fincher epic? Chat and help solve crimes only at quitefrankly.tv. See everybody. There you go. Look everybody with their heart with their their terrible Italian on quitefrankly.tv going at me like that. My gosh. How dare you? Anyway, Stay there on quitefrankly.tv because there is so much to do and you need to be a part of the uh, you need to be a part of the the whole effort tonight. Thank you to Stephen Ellis says Ohioans please vote no on issue one tomorrow to prevent full term abortion and child gender assignment surgeries without parental consent. Yeah, please go do that. I will be voting tomorrow as well over here in New York. We'll see what I can affect. With, I'm going to vote as hard as I can. We'll see what I can affect single-handedly. But uh, I appreciate you all. Thanks again tonight to all of the guests. And tomorrow is another day. I will see you there Tuesday night. Tuesday night, the feelings are right. Bye-bye. I'll catch you on the flip side.
frankly, is film for our live studio audience. And now our super chatters, starting with Katie Sky, Jay Britz, Stostoob, our wonderful friend Steve Ellis on Rumble, and so many of you on QuiteFrankly.tv. With those gold pills, it means the world. It keeps the, the network uh, up and running. And uh, it keeps the future bright. I appreciate you. I'll see you tomorrow night for some more great work. And who knows what will be on the on the agenda. It'll be just a light call-in show. It'll be topical. You know? You know what I mean? Jelly Bean? Oh, and also Marley Hornick is calling in. See you then. Jack's Journal, October 12th, 1985. Dog carcass in alley this morning. Tire tread on burst stomach. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And I'll whisper, No.